Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. that my parents were tired of me coming in crying because I was the younger brother and I would pick and I would get my older brother riled up and then he'd punch me and then I'd cry, right? I don't know, I don't know what this cycle, I don't know why I never figured out. So my parents said, well, if they're gonna, if they're gonna pick and wrestle and punch and all that, let's just get them boxing gloves. <laughs> and they got us several last boxing gloves, which then was just like, full on, I'm going to rear back and punch you as hard as I can because now it's not going to hurt my knuckles. It's just going to hurt your face. (laughs) And as badly as it ended every single time for me as the younger brother, as badly as it ended for me every time we strapped on those gloves, like Pavlov's dog, I couldn't help it. I could not help it. So I would put those gloves on, and he would get me so riled up, and he did that on purpose so that it would at least be some sort of fight, that there were punches thrown by me that he had to dodge. And I would just go wailing at him, and I would punch and punch and punch, and he would just laugh. And then he would just take one good blow to the head for me to be knocked out, which explains a lot, I know. We ended up having to get rid of the boxing gloves. That was a bad idea because I do think I ended up concussed one time. We had a group of friends over. We thought it would be great to do a whole uh, boxing tournament. And, uh, and everybody ended up at some point, I think, getting knocked out. So, yes. I mean, it was almost like, see if you can punch me hard enough to knock me out. But as silly as that was, and as it always ended up badly for me, I could not stop doing it. I don't know what it was. I guess it was petulance. I guess I thought in the end, at one point, I actually could win, but I never did. And a lot of us treat our relationship with God like that. We're petulant. We insist. We pick. We pride. We punch at, we get mad at, we throw, we throw roundhouses that are never going to land, and we just keep pushing back, and we keep pushing back, because we're too stubborn to admit that we're not as big as him. We want to be, and we think we are, and we think that we're smart enough to do what he does. But if you've ever watched Bruce Almighty, you know it never ends well. Today we're going to look at a passage from this last 24 hours of Jesus' life. We've called this, based on this book by Adam Hamilton, 24 Hours That Changed the World. 
Now, we're, as I said before, we're not going through the whole book. We're not using it, but really for an outline. And today we're going to look at the trial of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Gethsemane at the garden. This week, we're looking at what happens right after that, after he's arrested. So from last week to this week, I'm going to fill in the gap. Jesus is with his disciples. He prays. And we talked about that prayer and what it meant, why it was special. And then immediately, Judas shows up and betrays him, and Jesus is arrested. And what do all of his other disciples do? So one of them is betrayed, and what do the other 11 disciples do? They run. They scatter. They're gone. And Jesus is left alone, and he's arrested, and he's taken to Caiaphas' house, who was the high priest, the ultimate guy in charge and in power. And he was over the same Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of, does anybody know how many people? 70. And does anybody know why it was the number 70? I mean, I know if, if you knew this, I'd be very impressed because I'd forgotten it until I started doing research again. I was like, oh yeah, that's why. First off, 7 and 10 are two special numbers and holy numbers within the Jewish pool of imagery. 7 and 10. So 70 is this kind of special symbolic number for that. But 70 was also the number of leaders appointed by Moses in the desert to help control all of the people of Israel, the Hebrews, as they traveled in the desert. So the Sanhedrin was this construction, this power construction in Jesus' time that harkened back to the old setup of Moses and his leadership in the desert. Now we talked about this all through Mark. Jesus is replacing Moses, right? He's the new Moses. Last week, because he was in the garden, we actually talked about him also being the new Adam, that it was a restart, that everything was starting over. But Jesus, Mark wants his readers to clearly see that Jesus is the new Moses, that he's taking his people out of slavery and into a new land. He's setting them free to a new life and a new way of being. And so Jesus is this new Moses. So during Jesus' time, the leadership was 70 elders and priests and important, important religious scholars who sat on this council, and they were the ones who were going to decide Jesus' faith. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 14. And we're going to look at verses 53 through, 53 through 65. Mark 14, 53 through 65. You can follow on the screen or on a smart device as well. And they led Jesus to the high priest, they being the people who arrested him. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. And what was their motivation? To put him to death. So let's be clear. They all knew that the end result that they were looking for was a death sentence. Jesus walks into a trial that's a rigged trial, that's an unjust trial, 
And the outcome has already been decided. They're just trying to find a way within their system to legally maneuver. That's not very just, is it? And if you're a lawyer in the room, and I know there's at least one, that is extremely unjust. If you walk in with a client to a court where the decision was already made and you had no way to battle it, even knowing that it was a bad decision, you would say this is unjust. Well, that's what Jesus was walking into. Now, what's interesting about this is that they take him to the high priest's house. His house would have been a grand palace. And if you go to Jerusalem now, there's actually a church built on the site where they said that palace resides. And in the bottom of this church, you walk down, there is a hole. There's actually multiple holes in the ground that were cells. It is said that when someone was brought by the guards from the temple to stand or to see, uh, stand before uh, the, the high priest or some of the council, they would be left in that, in that hole in the ground. So you can actually go in that hole in the ground, and it might be the very place that Jesus was kept as they were making the decision about this trial. We don't know that, but there's a good chance of this. What's interesting about that is that it's dark and lonely. Imagine, imagine Jesus sitting in that cell as all the high priests gathering, or the high priest gathers all of the Sanhedrin together, and they come at night. Another interesting thing is the whole Sanhedrin never really met outside of one place, and what was that place where they would meet? The temple. So they were not in the temple, they were at the house of the high priest, which tells you how, how crucial, how immediate they felt this issue was. They couldn't wait until the next day it had to be settled now. And these 70 men plus the high priest come together and they bring Jesus into his house, not the temple. Another picture of Jesus in the distance from the presence of the Father, which was supposed to be in the temple, and him in this, in this ridiculous abomination of justice trial. Separated from the Father, just, I don't know, 300, 400, 500 yards away. They were seeking for testimony to put him to death, but they found none. Four, many more false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now the reason why that's important is in their legal system, you would bring in a witness and you would have them answer a series of questions and tell their story, and then you would send them back out. And they would go, and they wouldn't know what else was going on. Then they would bring in the next witness and do the same thing. And if their testimonies didn't match perfectly, then you couldn't find a person guilty. And so they tried this over and over and over and over again, and none of the guys could get it right. They couldn't even set this thing up any better than this. They were bad at their jobs in many ways. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made by hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. So taking matters in his own hands, verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Jesus, because they couldn't find witnesses to agree, could have remained silent. He could have continued to remain silent. He could have never answered any questions. And nothing would have happened to him. They would have sent him out that night. He wouldn't have had to go back into the pit. They would have sent him out that night. He wouldn't have had to go to the Romans. They could have sent him out that night, and it wouldn't have ended on a cross. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus held the power to get off, and it was easy, and he knew it, and it was right before him. All he had to do was plead the fifth. No, I'm not going to say anything. Because there was no evidence to prove what they were accusing him. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the one worthy to be blessed, or the Son of the Blessed? This is the one question. This is the one question crafted specifically to get a yes or no, crafted specifically to give them the opportunity to find Jesus guilty. None of the testimony would do. So they asked the one question. He got to the very crux of the matter. It was either a yes or a no. Jesus, again, could have remained silent, could have refused to answer he could have done a very Jesus thing and answered back with another question. Well, who do you say I am? <laughs> but he didn't. Jesus knew this was the question. He had remained silent until they got to this point because everything else was a distraction. And Jesus wanted to make it extremely clear who it was he was claiming to be. He wanted no distraction from false witnesses. He wanted no distraction from leading them down the path of calling him guilty of something that wasn't really worthy of the time. They missed the point of what he was doing. He forced them to this point to admit who he was. It all led to this. And instead of remaining silent, Jesus, for the first time all evening since he's been arrested, in this account, opens his mouth. And Jesus said, Ego me. I am. Two words in the Greek. Eo, I. Ami, the be verb, am. And it's the verb that is the present. Um, sorry. The present active 
doesn't matter. I just went blank on the third part of it. It's a present active verb, which means it is solid, it is true, and it will always be. The present active, it's ongoing action. I am, and I always will be. I am, and I always will be, no matter what you think about. I am. Now what's interesting about that phrase, I am? It's said of God, and you said what? It's God's name in Hebrew. Yahweh. Yahweh means I am. In the Greek, it's Egoemi. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. I am. What a great name for God. He always is, always will be, and always has been. He is the one constant in all the chaos. He is the anchor. He is the truth. He is the point from which everything else starts and ends. I am. I am. I am everything. I am everywhere. Not in some weird way like, oh, God's that sun or that rock or that car that just went speeding by. I'm not saying that. I'm not an animus, but God is everywhere. There is no place that we go that the I am isn't the I am. It will always be the I am. It has always been the I am. God is. And so when Jesus answers, he answers, I am. Now there's argument over whether Jesus was making a point that he is God himself or not. Was Jesus saying, I am, to hearken back to this name of God? We don't know. The scholars, many say, yes, obviously, that Jesus here is making the point that I am God in the flesh. Others say, no, he's just simply answering the question, but that it lingers out there for the people after to think about. I think that Jesus answered it knowing that there would be multiple reactions to this. He says three things here that get him in trouble. I am, meaning I am God. Then he quotes two pieces of scripture here. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Which is, which is a, a quote from Psalms 110. It's a psalm about the ultimate victory of the Son of God. The Son of David. Jesus is saying, I am, I am God, but I'm also this one that you read about and that you sing about and that you talk about all the time. I'm the one standing in front of you that you go on and on and on about in the synagogues and in the temple. I am that one that you've quoted and you've made other people quote, that you've memorized this scripture. I'm that guy. He quotes a scripture that they would have quoted over and over and over again about this Messiah. And he's saying, I'm that guy. 
you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And in that psalm, it goes on to say, and I will trample your enemies. And you'll set your feet up on them. Jesus, in a very clear way, is saying, I am God, and I'm going to win, and I'm going to kick my feet up on you. But then he says, and he quotes from Daniel 7, And you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven. And maybe you're curious like I am at the whole quote. This is from Daniel 7, and it's verse 13 and 14. In my vision at night, a vision that Daniel said, uh, had, Daniel being a prophet at this point, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, which is God, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. By the way, that phrase comes up over and over again in Revelation. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be Destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am the prophecy of Daniel 7. And yet again, he is quoting a scripture that all of the people, the 70 men in that room would have known exactly what he was saying and exactly what he meant. He was clearly saying that not only am I the son of God, as mentioned in Psalm 110, I am the answer to this vision Daniel had. And I have a power and authority that's over you. He's saying this. To the most powerful people in his culture. He's in essence saying, I spit on you. I'm better than you. You are lowly and weak compared to me. And he's not saying it like that, is he? Look, if I was Jesus, it would be more like a WWE entrance, right? It would. It would be music. I'd have a walk-in song, you know, smoke, all of that stuff. I would come and I'd jump off the top rope and bam! I would hammer drive someone down and I'd stand over them and, you know, do whatever they do. Split the noise like them. That's mixing things up, I know. But Jesus, in a way that only Jesus could do, basically says the same thing. He looks at these guys and he says, you know what? I am. But that's him. Then he says, not only I am, but I am such that I am going to rule over you. And you're my enemies. And God is going to put you down. And I'm going to prop my feet up on you. And if you miss that not-so-subtle hint at how powerful I am, I am also the ones coming in the clouds of heaven. And the Father, the Ancient of Days, the one that you say you worship, the one that you have prevented me from going and seeing about 300 yards, 400 yards away in the temple, the one who you have tried to separate me from and tried to distance my ministry from, the one who I am and I am all about, that guy, the one you say you worship, he has shared all his authority with me. 
The only person in your world he's saying to is powerful man that you bow down to has now given me that authority and you are not bowing down to me. Instead, you are trying to kill me. And the straw that broke the camel's back with this quote from Daniel 7 is the hint that not only that, I will also, I will also be your judge. I will also be your judge. How ironic is that? You're judging me. You're accusing me. And this is a false trial. It's unjust. And you think you have the upper hand. And you think you have all the power. But in the end, I have all the power. I have all the authority. And I get to judge you. That's what Jesus is in essence saying, but he's saying it in the most humble, humility-filled way he can. And I believe he says it in this way to give them yet another chance to turn, to see the truth. Now let me ask you something. If you were one of the 70 in the room, what would you have done? This guy had done miracles in front of you. This man taught in ways that you had never heard before. This man had people following him. But not just worshiping him. More than that, he was clearly shining the light back on Yahweh. It was obvious that this guy was different. It was obvious that this guy was powerful. It was obvious that what they were doing was unjust. It was obvious to us, but it was just as obvious to some in that room, and they didn't speak up. It was just as obvious. You can't tell me that all 70 were like, yeah, let's kill him. Yeah, this guy's bad. Bad news. He's making our culture better. Let's kill him. There had to be some. We'll never know how many. It could be more than half. But they didn't speak up. Why? Why didn't they stop? They preferred their distraction. They like what they have. They like the distractions. They like the lifestyle. They like their power. And they didn't want to see it, see it to anybody, especially this weird wandering preacher. I think that's part of the answer. They didn't want to give up their power. What? Fear. Fear. Fear of what? Fear of themselves then being found out, of being revealed to be wrong. Part of that is pride, right? Fear, pride, power. Wow. Humanity doesn't struggle with that anymore, does it? I think ultimately, 
fear came into play because they loved their pride and their power so much. Fear was the reaction, but what they really coveted, what they really loved, wasn't God. It was the power and the status that they had. It was the ability to do what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it. It was the ability to buy anything that they wanted to buy, anytime that they wanted to buy it. It was the power that they had to make decisions, not only for themselves, but for those around them. It was all of that. And guys, I will submit to you that you are exactly the same. And how do I know that? Because I'm exactly the same. What I love more than anything else is Todd, not God. Can I get a witness? I mean, I'm not about loving Todd, Jonathan, but about loving yourself more than God. And it's true, right? We love the power. We love the comfort. We love to be able to make the decisions. We love to do what we want to do without really having to pray about it or think about it or have any accountability over it. And in that way, we are like that nine-year-old Todd flailing at his brother who is just laughing at him. We think we can swing and we think that our petulance and we think that our pride is just going to not stand here and take it is going to overcome. But God always wins out. In the end, the question is, will it be too late? We aren't unlike the Sanhedrin. We don't stand up against the voices in our own head that tell us to do something that we know isn't just for right. And the high priest, hearing this, tears his garments and says, what further witnesses do we need? Because, by the way, none of the witnesses were good enough to convict. You have heard this man's blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all, 70 of them, condemned him as deserving death. Because they loved their control and their power and their status more than they loved God. And their response to kill Jesus was a response of fear. And I would say, we still do the same. What power are you clinging on to? In the decisions of your life, big and small, is Jesus the motivating factor or is it you? Is it your will be done? <laughs> is it your will be done? Guys, it's time to take off the everlast red bison gloves. We're beating against a stationary object that has always been always is, and always will be. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.